this morning we'll be talking about John. You know, he, he saw something in Christ that many of the other disciples didn't see. But with this in mind, as we begin a teaching series today uh, that's been stirring in my heart for many years, it, it, it's just the thought of taking the I am's of Jesus, the, the places where he gives us a promise and says, I am. And, and it echoes, doesn't it? It echoes back, if you think back to Exodus, Exodus 3, where, where God taps Moses on the shoulder and says, I've got a job for you. I want you to go down to Egypt and, and redeem my people and rescue them from the hand of Pharaoh. And Moses says, well, who should I say sent me? And he says, I am who I am. The voice of God comes and speaks to Moses. And so when, when uh, Jesus steps onto the stage of human history and says, I am, you can better believe that every Jewish man, woman, and child knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying that he was God, that he is sufficient, that he provides for our spiritual needs. He gives us spiritual rest. He gives us spiritual nourishment. He is the good shepherd. He is the living uh, water. He is the, the bread from heaven, these promises. So we're going to spend some time. This will run us through pretty much through Easter. Uh, There's some other promises in there in the Gospel of John that we're going to camp on. But as a teaching team, that's our plan is to take a look at the uh, the red letters, if you will, in the book of John. I had an uncle who was struggling with cancer, and uh, I asked him as he approached death, I said, Ted, how you doing? How's your faith holding you? Is your faith holding you up? Is it sustaining you? And he says, well, I'll tell you, Mike, the, the, the letters in red mean a lot more to me, and they mean to us too. So this this series here, that's what we'll be looking at is the letters in red, the I am's of Jesus, the promises that he gives to us. And it's curious, too, to stand back and look at these promises and say, you know what? They all come from the Gospel of John. How is it that, that John saw something? He knew something. He understood something that perhaps the other disciples didn't see, that he was so close to the heart of Christ. He captured something on a deeper level than perhaps the others did. He had a closeness, an intimacy with the Lord that was reflected in this description of himself that we'll spend the rest of the time this morning looking at, and that is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Have you ever considered that, saints? Have you ever considered that for yourself, that you are a disciple whom Jesus loves? I want you to get that in your heart this morning, that you're loved tremendously and, and uniquely and specifically by God, that you are a disciple whom Jesus loves. We see it the first time in the Last Supper, John 13, 23. It reads, lying back on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, as I, as I begin thinking through this, and, you know, the context there is is that it was the Last Supper. It was probably a U-shaped table. You know, we think of table, and, and we have table and chairs. Well, in that day, they didn't have many chairs, they were, they were probably hard to fabricate, and there's, there's not a lot of wood there. So it was probably a U-shaped table, but it was more like a coffee table. So you ate laying down, and so you would prop yourself up on one, on one elbow, and you would eat with a hand, and your head would rest back against the guy behind you. That's the context here, which where, where John's head is leaning on Jesus' chest, this closeness, this intimacy, place of honor. As I thought about, well, how do I capture this? How do I, how do I express this to our church in such a way that you can grasp it and understand it and take hold of it? I ran across this sermon from Charles Spurgeon. He's a Baptist preacher from London in the 1800s, about 1850 to 1890 or so is when he preached there. And people would stand in line and, and, and wait for a seat for hours to get into his church just to just to hear him speak. He was a man who was, uh, uh, someone said, he came to Christ at age 15, began preaching at 19, very young age to begin preaching. But he was known for his heart of devotion to Christ. One said of him that he impresses you with a perfect conviction of his sincerity. As I thought about this phrase, this sermon popped 
popped up and, and I spent some time thinking about it. So I just want to give you this. I, I've, I've taken some portions out of the sermon and it was the clearest tool I could find to express this thought of the disciple whom Jesus loved. So sit back and listen with me. I want to read some of these portions of this sermon to you from Charles Spurgeon in 1880 in London. It is the name which John gives himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Naturally, you or I would be slow to take such a title, even if we felt like it belonged to us, but with a sweet naivety, which makes him quite forget himself, John took the name, which he knew most accurately described himself. Far from there being any pride in it, it just shows the simplicity of his spirit, the openness, the transparency of his character, and his complete self-forgetfulness. It is a name in which John hides himself. These are names by which he would travel through his own gospel incognito. We'll find out, however, that his disguise is far too thin, but he intends to conceal himself behind his Savior. He wears his master's love as a veil, though it turns out to be a veil of light. It might have been, he might have called himself the disciple who wrote one of the Gospels or the disciple who knew more of the very heart of Christ than any other, but he has preference to love. He is not a disciple who did anything, but he's one who received love from Jesus. He is not a disciple who loved Jesus, but the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was a recipient of God's love. John is the man in the silver mask, and we know the man by his communications. And we hear him say in 1 John 4, 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God and God in him. The name before us is a name which John himself felt most at home. There was no other title so well described him. His name, John, means gift of God. He was a precious gift from God the Father to his suffering son and a great comfort to the Savior during his life among men. Jesus doubtless counted on his Jonathan, his John, his God gift, and he treasured him as such. But John does not think of himself as being of any service to his Lord as that which the Lord had given to him. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved because he recognized the delightful obligation which springs out of great love and wished to be ever under its royal influence. He looked on Jesus' love as a source and root of everything he had about himself, which was gracious and commendable. If we had any courage, if he had any faithfulness, any depth of knowledge, it was because Jesus had planted those things into him. All the sweet flowers which bloomed in the garden of his heart were planted there by the hand of Christ's love. So that when he himself says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved, he felt that he had gone to the very root and bottom of the matter and explained the main reason of his being who and what he was. The character of John we see is most, most admirable. He was a man with a large heart and a warm heart. Perhaps the main force lies in the intensity of his nature. He's not vehement, but deep and strong. Some men go two ways. They might tack about like a sailboat back and forth and come around at their object in an indirect manner. But John steams straight forward, fires blazing and the engine working at full speed. His whole soul was engaged in the Lord's cause, for he was a man of deep thinking, a silent student, and then a forceful actor. He was not impetuous with the haste of Peter, but yet he was determined and thoroughgoing and all on fire with zeal. He was exceedingly sincere in his beliefs. He believed to the uttermost what we know of his Lord. Read his epistle through and you'll see how many times he says, we know, we know, we know. There are no ifs about John. He is a deep and strong believer. There's an intense warmth about him too. He loves his Lord. He loves his brethren. He loved with a large heart for he had a grand nature. He loved constantly. He loved in such a way as to be practically courageous for his master. He was a bold man, a true son of thunder. He was ready to go to the front if he needed to, but he had a quiet way, not a rush and a noise. He's not the dash of a gushing stream, but the still flow of a deep river. 
He carried summer, the season of summer, in his countenance, his energy in his manner, and his steady force in all his movements. There was a warmth as well as light in him. He was an intense, sincere, and unselfish by nature, and a fullness of grace had come upon him and sanctified these virtues. He takes a name to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus loved him as a disciple. Well, what kind of disciples do masters love? Well, if you've ever taught Sunday school, you might know that there are some, it takes you about five minutes to figure out, right, who's listening and who's not. But if you've ever been a teacher of youth, you know that there are certain piece, persons that would be selected ahead of others. But John was a man who was quick to learn. He was not like Thomas, slow and cautious and argumentative. But having once assured himself that this was true, he gave himself to it and was willing to receive what the Lord had to reveal. He was full of faith to accept what he was taught. He believed it, and he believed it really and thoroughly. He did not believe, as some people do, with the finger ends of their understanding. I mean, he gripped it with both hands. He laid it up in his heart. He allowed it to flow from that center and saturate his whole being. He was a believer in his inmost soul, both when he saw the blood and water at the cross and the folded grave, grave clothes at the empty tomb. He saw and believed. There was something there at the empty tomb in Jerusalem. We were there just a year ago. It's an amazing place. It really is. He believed in his master in a sweet, familiar way, as John writes in 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Such a trusting and confiding disciple was sure to be loved by his teacher. So what was the life of John? Well, it was a life of intimate communion. John was wherever Christ was. Other disciples drift away, but Peter, James, and John, you see, are normally present. When all the disciples sit at the table, it's not Peter who's closest to the Lord Jesus, but John. He leans his head upon the chest of Jesus. Their intimacy was close and dear. It was John and David, uh, David and Jonathan all over again. If you're a man who's greatly loved, you'll live in Jesus, and you'll have your fellowship with him from day to day. John's life was one of special usefulness. He was entrusted with choice commissions involving high honor. The Lord gave him to do a work which is most tender and delicate, which I'm afraid he might not commit to some of us. As the Redeemer hung on the tree, dying, he saw his mother standing in the crowd. He did not commit her to Peter, but to John. Peter would have been glad for the commission, I'm sure. So would Thomas, or so would James. But the Lord said to John, Behold your mother, and to his mother, Behold thy son. And from that hour, the disciple took Jesus into her, uh, took, uh, her into his home. He was a man who would take charge of a broken-hearted mother. Peter is good, but he's rough. Thomas is kind, but he's cold. John is tender and affectionate. You will love Jesus much when he will trust his mother to you. And by this, I mean his church and the poorest people in it, such as widows and orphans and the poor. He will trust them to you because he loves you much. He will not put them just in anyone's office. Some people are very hard and stony of heart. They would make good officers in the army, but not nurses in a hospital. If you love Jesus much, you will have many delicate tasks to perform, which will be proofs to you of the Lord's trust in you and renewed tokens of his love to you. Jesus Christ warms people. He never shines on an iceberg except to melt it. His own life was so full of love that a holy fire kindles the, like a flame in others, and he has fellowship with those whose hearts burn within them. To enjoy the love of Jesus, we must overflow with love. Pray for earnest, eager, intense affection. Lay your hearts among the coals of love until they melt and glow. Dear brother, if you want to be the man that Jesus loves, cultivate strong affection and let your nature be tender and kind. A man who's habitually cross and frequently angry cannot walk with God. A man who's quick-tempered and never tries to check it, or a man in whom there's a malicious remembrance of injuries like a fire smoldering among the elders cannot be the companion and friend of Jesus. His spirit is an opposite character. His is a compassionate, unselfish, generous heart. 
forgive your fellow as if you never ever had anything to forgive. When a brother injures, hope that they made a mistake or else if they knew you better, they might treat you worse. Be of such a mind towards them that you will neither give nor take offense. Be willing to lay down not only your comfort, but even your life for your brothers. Live in the joy of others, even as saints do in heaven. Love others so as to forget your own sorrows, so you shall become a man or woman greatly loved. And last of all, may the Spirit of God help you to rise to heavenliness. Do not be miserable money grubbers or sordid earthworms. Do not be pleasure hunters or novelty seekers. Do not set your affection upon these child's toys, which will soon be broken up and thrown away. Be ye no more children, but men of God. Oh, to find you your joy in Christ, your wealth in Christ, your honor in Christ, your everything in Christ. This is peace. This is joy. Be in the world, but not of the world. To linger here as if you were an angel sent from heaven to dwell for a while among the sons of men. To tell of heaven, to point the way. This is to abide in Christ's love. To be always ready to fly, to stand on tiptoe, waiting for the heavenly call, and expect to hear it in a moment, the trumpet ring out its clarion note, the trumpet of the coming of your Lord. This is to have fellowship with Christ. Sit loose, I pray you, by this world. Get a tighter grip on the world to come. So shall Jesus' love be shed abroad within you. Throw your anchor upward into the placid sea of divine love, not downward into the troubled ocean. Anchor yourselves to the eternal throne and never be divided even in thought from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May it be my privilege and yours, brothers and sisters, to lean these heads of ours on Jesus' chest until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Amen and amen. It's Charles Spurgeon from 140 years ago, but it still rings true today, doesn't it, saints? So my prayer and plea this morning is with you that we would know the love of Jesus in our lives. We would recognize and marvel and rejoice this morning at the love of Jesus for you, that like John, each of us could say, I am a disciple whom Jesus loves. Amen.